It's always interesting for me at times like this when I'm sitting up here and I'm expected to talk and I see this intention to speak arise and pass, arise and pass. (laughs) And sometimes I think I could just watch that for an hour. (laughs) And it might not ever quite get me to actually speak. And I don't think my colleagues would thank me for that. Maybe they, maybe they'd get it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they would realize that was what was happening. <laughs> Probably they wouldn't go for that. And you might wonder as well. <laughs> I'm not sure it shows from the outside. But usually, so far to date, one of them has been strong enough that I've actually always begun speaking. Not one of these days. I can feel it coming. It's all be a sort of John Cage style <laughs> talk. Forty-five minutes of ambient sound. <clears throat> and then I'll ring the bell. I, you know, I, I guarantee you in terms of eloquence, that will probably not be um, surpassed in my lifetime by me. <clears throat> From the window of the room that I meet with you all in groups and in individual meetings, I can look out that window and down below in a lilac tree. It's almost a tree-sized lilac shrub. There's a beautiful robin's nest. The robin has done a very good job with her nest. And she sits there a lot. She must be, the eggs are there. I'm sure she wouldn't be sitting quite so much if there weren't eggs. And she's made it through some couple bad storms now. And I'm very impressed with that robin. And sometimes we're lucky enough to get to see a robin sitting on her nest like that. It's a fine thing, a robin sitting on its nest. It's hard to think of anything really better than that. Although I was thinking about puffins. (laughs) And you might wonder why I would think about puffins. But I do, with some regularity, find myself thinking about puffins. Now, a puffin is an exceptionally fine thing, (laughs) and I'm extremely fond of them. Last year, I was invited to teach a retreat in Sweden. You may be wondering why at this point in this talk that would have happened, but it it may be a one-off deal. (laughs) But uh, the flight I booked to go there happened to go through Iceland. And I, I decided, well, okay, I've never been to Iceland. I probably will never be back in Iceland. I should at least stop for a day in Iceland. It was a mythological kind of place in my mind. Iceland is steaming. It's um, vents of steam are arising out of that island all over the place. But it happens to be the summer home of a lot of puffins. And I 
had, uh, that was my main goal in going there was to see if I could see them. And I found a place on a little island off the south coast where there were thousands of them. There, for those of you who don't know, it's a small water seabird that's kind of like a tiny penguin with a giant orange bill. And they uh, fly from the North Atlantic down to the Antarctica seasonally. Kind of amazing to think of them doing that journey. They're small and they have to flap their wings a lot. They're not like big, you know, soaring bird. It takes a lot of energy to fly if you're a puffin. They make this great noise. Oh. <laughs> oh. When they're perched on the cliffs. I think that they're, my, my, in my imagination, they're looking at the cold North Atlantic waters <laughs> into which they will have to dive if they want to eat because they fish. Oh. Not sure that they really want to do that. <laughs> but you know, we can take things like the robin on her nest or the puffins. We can take them for granted somehow, or we don't even think of them at all. I love the puffins, I love the robin, and they touch my heart, and I think they touch all of our hearts if we open to them in a profound way. Michelle spoke to this last night. We take so much for granted and and we need to be very careful how we live because one day we'll discover we have traded the last puffin for the latest cell phone or something. They say there are no birds in hell. We have to be very careful how we're living in the world. <clears throat> I think what I've been rambling on about may have some connection to the talk tonight. <laughs> but if it doesn't, this was the real talk and this is um, just sort of extra. There's a, a, an understanding that runs throughout the Buddha's teachings. It's, it's kind of key there in a way. It's important. It's a key understanding or concept, but it leads often to a lot of confusion and misunderstanding when we think about it. Sometimes a lot of suffering. And this is the Buddha's teaching on the law of kamma or karma. I'll use the word karma because we are much more familiar with that. Kamma is the Pali, karma, Sanskrit. I think some of the confusion may come from the fact that the word has become so much a part of our, our common usage in recent decades. You know, it's, it's in the vernacular and it's used in casual ways that reflect some connection to what this teaching is about, to the understanding of kamma, karma, but it, it tends to keep it on a somewhat superficial level. It's, uh, it doesn't get to the heart of what is really going on there. You know, we hear oh, quotations or bumper stickers, instant karma's gonna get you, or 
various references to good karma or bad karma or, you know, this bumper sticker, my karma just ran over your dogma. And, you know, it's, it's out there and we have some sense of what it's pointing to. I actually think that's a cool bumper sticker. <laughs> or, you know, it's referred to in ways that don't, don't, you know, sound so Buddhist and come from other, other traditions or things like, as ye show, sow, so shall ye reap. And what goes around comes around, these kinds of sayings. And there's some connection to what the Buddha was pointing to, but often it's an oversimplification and, and actually a misunderstanding that sometimes leads to, to difficulty in our lives. And the understanding and the teaching of karma also is very, um, very connected to the understanding of uh, rebirth, which permeates the Buddha's teaching. It's throughout there. Uh, and this is another subject which really leads to a lot of confusion and uh, questions, questions about who or what is reborn, who experiences the fruits of past actions. Is, is the trouble and suffering that I'm experiencing now in this lifetime the result of something that I did in the past or in some past life? Is it, is it somehow my fault? You know, sometimes there's this almost blaming quality as though karma functions like fate. You know, like there's this force that's emerging out of our past that somehow we're responsible and at the same time, we're powerless to do anything about it. And we can hear attitudes like, well, I guess it's just my karma or some kind of fatalistic sort of attitude. Oh, it's just, it's, it's their karma. It's this person's karma. As though it's just fate or something like that. And it's a short step from there to an attitude as though someone deserves to suffer, doesn't deserve our help or our compassion. We need to be very careful because the teachings on karma and this understanding, we have to be careful they don't somehow become an excuse for not caring or some kind of indifference. One uh, teacher of mine once referred to karma the teaching on karma, the understanding, as the science of happiness. I like thinking about it that way. Hopefully I'll shed some light on how that might be the case. I think it's an apt description of this teaching because if we do understand the workings of karma, we'll find that it is a recipe for happiness, for human happiness, for what we might call heavenly happiness and eventually, ultimately, the happiness of liberation, of freedom. But in order to understand it, we have to take a couple of steps back and begin uh, with looking at what we mean by the conditioned or causal nature of things. You know, we hear this as a very Buddhist thing to say, everything is conditioned. We talk about conditioned experience. And we may hear ourselves even saying this and not really have a sense for what we mean when we say things are conditioned. What does it mean? When we say 
each moment is the, we say, the, the moment, the, this, the experience in a moment is the product of causes and conditions that have come together in that moment, resulting in, in the way it is. What this points to is that each moment has an impact on subsequent moments, a conditioning effect. It, um, yeah, it has an impact on it. And there's an understanding that this conditioning effect is, an, is a lawful process. It unfolds lawfully. It's not, the, it's not a, a series of random events or, or some luck of the draw situation. There are natural laws that govern how this happens. We could see this as a reflection of what we might call the law of nature. Like, there's a great way we can think about it is you know, if we think of a seed. A seed is an incredible thing. These seeds, they hold, you can take an acorn, it's a little thing, and it will produce this huge tree if, it's, if the conditions are right for it to um, happen. And there's a lawful way that that this happens. So if we take an acorn and plant it, we're going to get an oak tree. We won't get a maple or a birch. If I put hollyhock seeds in the ground, I'm going to get hollyhocks, not daisies. So uh, this is just obvious, of course, but there's a lawful uh, way that that unfolds. And this same lawfulness applies to the unfolding of uh, karma in the world, in our lives. Actions yielding results, bearing fruits in a lawful way. And in terms of this understanding of rebirth, this happens within one lifetime and the understanding that it happens from one lifetime to the next. Now this idea of rebirth might not be meaningful for us. In fact, it might the very idea might bring up a lot of questions, resistance. No, I don't go for that. There's nothing in my experience that makes me think that that's real. That's some religiosity or whatever. Luckily, we don't have to believe in rebirth in any way to understand the workings of karma. We can see this process unfolding moment by moment within one lifetime. And we can see the idea of, of birth, life, death, rebirth in terms of, of this process through, through a lifetime, through one lifetime. How many different births do we take in a single day? In a single meditation period, we can take birth in a deva realm, a heavenly realm, in a hell realm, and everything in between. It happens, doesn't it? We go from blissful deva realms to just crushed by some awful feeling in the mind or body. These are, we could see rebirth in this way. So we don't have to think of it in terms of, of many, many lifetimes. We might, you know, it's talked about that way. So we might be open to the possibility, but it doesn't matter actually. There's an image that I find useful, and I mentioned this in one of my groups or to someone individually, that helps me to kind of see this conditioning thing and how, how things move through 
through time, you could say in a certain sense, or that points to an understanding of what we might call rebirth. If you took a candle that was a, that was a lit candle, like one of these things, and you used it to light another candle, then what's happening there? We're not taking the flame off of one and putting it on the other, but we are taking some condition and moving it and it conditions the arising. One conditions the arising of the next flame. So there's no thing that is, that is passed between them and yet there is this process that happens there. So you could, you could see the uh, conditioning from one mind moment, one moment to the next as much the same thing. You have to imagine that the first candle has gone out each time. It doesn't stay lit but it's moved over, but there's not a thing that's passed on. So in terms of the idea of rebirth, there's not a thing, there's a lawful thing. The result isn't random. If I move it over there, I get another flame, not some other thing. It's not like some other thing might arise there. So when we ask this question about who or what is reborn, we have to be careful that we don't turn this process, that we don't put some thingness into that process that doesn't actually exist there. There's this conditioning effect. So the process of death and rebirth is seen as this conditioning thing, this process. And with the understanding of karma, then there's the idea that actions in this life condition in the same way as this we could say this flame transfers these, these conditions to the new one. But there's no thing there. There's a connection there, but not thingness. So there's not a, no one reborn, and yet there is something <laughs> carried through. So wholesome, skillful actions in the present tend to condition wholesome, happy states in the future. And whether we see this in terms of a single lifetime or multiple lifetimes, uh, it's the same process, it doesn't matter. The uh, famous Tibetan teacher, Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche was once asked about what's reborn, and he said, your neuroses, (laughs) which is kind of uh, actually a useful (laughs) way to think about it. Somehow those, those babies, They come along until we let them go. (laughs) So, but as I was saying this, we have to be careful that we don't fall into a relationship with the understanding of karma that falls into fatalism or resignation as though we could use it then as a reflective device to point to the reasons why things are the way they are in our lives or in other people's lives. And so, for example, to see a current lack of, of health as evidence of some past misdeed and we're just getting what we deserve. It's not a, a fixed thing. It's a dynamic process. It's not mechanistic and nothing within it is fixed or predetermined. It's constantly being informed by all kinds of things. This is what something uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said about karma. He said, some people misunderstand the concept of karma. 
they take the Buddha's doctrine of the law of causality to mean that all is predetermined, that there's nothing that the individual can do. This is a total misunderstanding. The very term karma or action is a term of active force, which indicates that future events are within your own hands. Since action is a phenomenon that is committed by a person, a living being, it is therefore within your own hands to decide whether or not you engage in an action. So this points to the literal meaning of the word karma, kamma. It means action. It means the doing of a thing. It's an action. And so this points to something essential in the understanding of this teaching, this uh, exploration of kamma. All actions, I talked about this quite a bit in my, in my last talk on mindfulness of mind. All actions of body, of speech, even actions of the mind, have their origin in the mind. Everything that we do actively, any action we take has its genesis in the mind and the heart. And that famous quotation I used the other night, mind as the forerunner of all things. So it, that's the genesis of action, starts there. Within the mind, there's this mental factor called intention. The word in Pali is chetana. And this is um, intention, volition, another word there. It's an energy that gives rise to action. And it's this, this, this mental factor <laughs> that has to very much to do with, uh, it's what results in uh, the fruits of kamma, kamma vipaka. Buddha said this, intention I tell you is kamma. Intending one does kamma, one acts by way of body, speech, and mind. Now this, this quality, this factor of chetana, intention, volition, in and of itself, it's neutral karmically, but there are a host of other uh, factors that may arise and color this intention. And again, I spoke about this a lot. I'll, I'll try not to belabor this point. But for example, the intention, the energy to act might be colored by desire, by greed, by generosity, by love, by delusion, by wisdom, all these sorts of other factors that may arise in the moment. So we could call that then the motivation behind an action, the motivation that colors the intention. (coughs) So this is a key understanding there. The karmic weight of an action is not found within the action, but within this, the motivation that colors the intention there. It's, It's really... Uh, there's some simple examples. We might see somebody using uh, a crowbar or an axe to, to break open a door. Uh, we could see that action happening. In the one case, it's a thief who's robbing a house. One motivation there. In another, it's, it could be a fireman um, opening a place to rescue someone from a building where the door is is barred to uh, save someone from a fire. So the action looks the same, but the intention, the motivation 
is very different in those simple examples. So again, I'll go to this image of a seed, which is a useful way to think about this uh, process. If we think about the power of an acorn to bring forth this giant oak tree, and then that oak tree produces um, thousands of more acorns and thousands of more trees could come from that and on and on and year after year. It points to the uh, potential power of, of intention in the mind. It's immense, even though in and of itself it manifests very subtly. It's very quick. It's a hard thing to notice. We can notice it in our meditation. I was talking about it in my rambling preamble, which almost resulted in a silent talk. But it's, it's very subtle, that quality of intention. We can notice it. But its potential to produce results is great. It may flower forth, forth with an abundance of different kinds of fruits, the seed of intention. And so this motivation of wholesome or unwholesome, as I was speaking about the other night, is key here. And it's very useful and potentially very empowering and liberating to get a sense for this because we have a, there's a choice in terms of the seeds we want to plant and nurture. We can plant the seeds of future happiness for ourselves, happiness in the world, and the seeds of suffering. It's really up to us. And this might make sense. Maybe I'm speaking uh, in a way that kind of makes sense. I hope so, at least a little bit. But then when we look at how we're living our lives and whether or not we would put this into um, practice, it's interesting to look and see then how, how do I live? How do I relate to this in a, in a practical way, not just some theory? There's a sutta, well-known sutta in uh, one of the collections where the Buddha is giving teachings, instructions to his son Rahula, who became a monk when he, was, uh, when he grew up. And he asked, this is a little dialogue, this is an excerpt, a short part from that sutta. The Buddha said, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And Rahula answers, for reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should should reflect on it. This action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you know that it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results, then any action of that sort is not fit for you to do. It's absolutely unfit. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, that it would be skillful with wholesome consequences and wholesome results, then it is fit for you to do. And the Buddha goes on then to recommend that Rahula not only reflect before he does an action, but while he's in the middle of doing it, check it out then, And after he's done it, look again. Was it skillful? Was it not? That might sound like kind of a lot of work, 
but it's really worth bringing attention to how often we just act out of, um, on kind of automatic. So this whole process of this understanding points to a way that we might not just be acting on automatic, not just acting out habits of mind. There's another way that the Buddha spoke about attention to our actions in terms of what are called the 10 unwholesome actions to be avoided. And it's kind of an interesting list of, of uh, that he put here. There are three of them are bodily actions, four of them are actions of speech, and three are actions of mind. We usually don't think of actions of mind, but um, it's related to in that way. So I'll mention them briefly. Uh, some of them relate very directly to the precepts that we take in terms of our conduct. So the bodily actions to be avoided are intentionally killing living beings, taking that which is not given, or stealing for short, and engaging in sexual misconduct. Actions of speech are lying, harsh or abusive speech, malicious speech, which uh, would cause division or undermine another or another uh, or some relationship, and useless speech, which falls Things like idle chatter and gossip fall into the category of useless speech. Might be interesting for us to look at that one. If we ruled out idle chatter and gossip, it would be a lot quieter. (laughs) How much of the time does what we're saying fall into that category of useless speech? Quite a lot. And then the actions of mind to be avoided are covetousness, might not be a familiar word to some of you. It's this um, intense um, movement of the mind, um, wanting of uh, the possessions of another or, f- or for something or some quality, a kind of intense desire, uh, usually directed towards uh, what belongs to another, but not only that. Ill will is the second action of mind, and then wrong view. One should avoid the action of wrong view. It was interesting that that one was in there. The other two seem kind of uh, obvious, but wrong view might be uh, not so obvious. And right view, wrong view, this is spoken about in a lot of different ways. But one way that shows up all the time this points this kind of circular pattern in the teachings. One uh, way that it uh, shows up a lot is in terms of an understanding of the law of karma, the law of causality, of cause and effect. It's all over in the suttas. So you could say actions born of this um, wrong mental action, of, wrong, of this wrong view in the mind, arise from, we could say they arise from a mistaken view of reality. So it would be, wrong view would be the idea that actions do not have consequences, that actions do not bear fruit according to their quality. And this leads to uh, heedless ways of action, of acting in the world that can have incredibly powerful consequences in our lives, in, in the world. So that's a qu- one quality of wrong view 
is not understanding that our actions do have consequences, do bear fruit. And then there's a list of 10 wholesome actions to be done, and they're basically the non-doing of all those unwholesome ones. You could think of this, so refraining from killing, stealing, and so forth. Or we could turn it in a positive way and say uh, wholesome motivations. So for example, uh, renunciation instead of covetousness, or kindness as opposed to ill will, generosity instead of greed, right view instead of wrong view. So seeing how these this functions in these kinds of ways, there's a, we have kind of a clear standard for our behavior or a set of guidelines for what would lead to happiness and what would lead to suffering. We have the potential to make choices that lead to what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, the happiness of blamelessness, this mind that would be free of uh, the qualities of remorse and regret and guilt, worry over past unskillful actions. There's a saying that only the Buddha can understand, fully understand the workings of karma. It's said to be kind of um, beyond the, the reach, the ken of, of uh, anyone but a Buddha to really understand it within a single lifetime or over the course of multiple lifetimes. But we can get a sense for how it happens in our direct experience. And I'll just give a few simple ways that we can notice uh, how it how it happens in our own lives. Often when we go on retreat, uh, at times we, we may be flooded by memories. And I know some of you have, have uh, ex- mentioned this or talked about memories coming. Um, sometimes memories that we didn't even know that, that the thing happened. And sometimes these memories are difficult to be with and sometimes they are of past unskillful actions that we have done that we may uh, bring up a lot of uh, remorse. I know um, when I was first on retreat, um, not only then, but uh, on one of my first long retreats, I had all these memories of ways that I had been unbelievably cruel to insects as a small boy. I think that's maybe a lot of boys are pretty mean to bugs. And, um, you know, horrible things. I was also very kind to them. I was the one that they would get to move bugs out of the room in kindergarten, and I would rescue them from water, and I, would, I was kind, but unbelievably cruel at times. And, and there was so much remorse arising in my mind in regard to these terrible actions that I did as a child. And sometimes then memories, well, like the memories of times when there was kindness or of skillful actions we may have done, of, uh, of uh, wholesome, beautiful things. And when these memories come, the, the effect on the mind is very different. And with the one, the mind may be, fall into um, feeling really bad and sad and a lot of remorse, maybe shading into guilt, which is um, not so useful. Remorse can be useful. It's already been spoken about, but guilt is completely useless. 
We just use it to beat ourselves with. So we can see that the, um, these different actions have these, these fruits that um, impact our mind. They can impact um, our meditation very directly. We see the, the difference in those two mind states that might come. Another way we can uh, get a sense for the workings of karma is to see how our mental state affects our relationships with others, how others respond to us. We can, we've all seen this. If there's a lot of anger or envy, jealousy or um, fear in our mind, the way that others respond to us is very different than if our heart is filled with love or generosity or care or kindness. Very different response we get from others in the world. Mindfulness gives us the possibility to um, then see what's happening, see the motivations. We have the possibility to actually see what motivations are arising in a moment that are coloring this quality of intention. And we have a chance to see the results of our actions, to maybe make a choice there, what we want to follow. But it's not always easy to see this because it happens quickly, it's quite subtle. And of course, our motivations may not be clear or they're often mixed. Very often they're mixed. So here are some simple examples of that quality of a mixed motivation. Sometimes it's clear, it's just pure full-on greed. I'm going to eat this 10-pound bar of chocolate and you know it's obvious that full-on greed is running the show in that moment or something else like that. But let's say, for example, after the uh, chanting, we're here meditating in the hall, that uh, late sitting. And, um, you know, maybe going along, but then uh, unpleasant feelings arise of tiredness, fatigue, aching in the body. And we notice the desire and this intention to get up, to move, to go to bed. And there's wisdom present there because it's getting late and it's a long day and the body needs rest. But then there may be the intention to, oh, I'm going to sit a little longer. I'm going to push this edge of, of not just going to bed immediately. I can stay a little longer. Let me see what I can uh, learn by um, getting a little out of my, what I'm comfortable with here. And so there could be some wisdom there too. You know, it's, it's good to not just always do what's easy or feels easy in the moment push that edge a bit. But then there's also, we can see that that is colored also with, we want to be the last one out of the hall because we'll look so good <laughs> to the other yogis. If we're the last one out, yes. Everyone will see that I am the best yogi. <laughs> or maybe we're motivated to make an offering, to give, uh, to donate, to sponsor a meal or, or make an offering of some kind. And it's a beautiful, wholesome motivation. Oh yes, let me support the, the retreat in this way. Or let me offer this uh, beautiful thing to someone uh, that, that I know will make them happy. And it's, it's a sincere, sincere offering and a desire, a connection to the power of generosity and, and uh, how, what a beautiful thing this is in the world and how it can inform our practice and we wanna cultivate it. And then at the same time, we want to make sure that everyone knows that it's us who did it and 
so they can see how generous, you know, maybe we sat late, we were the last one out of the hall, and we were really generous. <laughs> we want everyone to know. Or maybe we're hoping that we'll get something in return, or maybe we think, well, if I'm a good Buddhist, I do this, and I'm expected to be generous, or something like that. So it's, it's mixed. And it doesn't mean we, we, we don't wait until our motivation is completely pure before we do things. We should still do the wholesome thing, even if we notice, well, okay, I also want people to know that I'm really great, or something like that. Hmm. We can see see karma in us. This is a maybe a less obvious connection, but we can see karma showing up in our experience in terms of what we might call the development of, of our personality. What's a personality? What is that? We all have them. We can see it one way is in terms of kind of habitual mind states and predictable patterns of behavior that we may have, that others may have. We look at them as something that's kind of fixed, as though it's just the way we are, the way someone else is, that's their personality. But what happens in that, in that development of one is that there are repeated actions that um, through doing one thing again and again, we're conditioning a tendency to do it again in the future. So whether we, anytime we act through uh, in our body, in our speech, even in the mind, we're practicing whatever that is. We're conditioning a tendency to do it again. It's easier the second time, the third time. It just is, it's like wearing a groove in a certain way. So if we act uh, from anger, fear, confusion, we're practicing that. We're conditioning the tendency for that to be more likely to happen in the future. When we act out of kindness or generosity, then we're practicing that. So in either way, there's a powerful conditioning effect in our lives in the world. And and understanding this points to the fact that we can intentionally cultivate what is wholesome. We can actually incline the mind and the heart towards what's good and, and refrain from what is not wholesome or skillful. So these these things that we think of as a personality, it's not a fixed thing. <laughs> I mean, certain things stick around, don't they? But it's not um, just sort of, that's the way it is. There is a dynamic aspect to that. So then we can see this understanding of the workings of kama as a recipe for happiness, as the signs of happiness, in that there is this real personal um, responsibility that we're given for our lives and the understanding that the way we live really matters and the choices we make matters and our life will unfold according to the motivations behind our actions. There's a list of five things that the Buddha recommended that one frequently reflect upon, whether a nun or a monk or a lay woman or a lay man, all of us. And the last one of those is a reflection on, on the law of karma. It goes like this. I am the owner of my actions. 
heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever I do for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. So we begin then in this understanding, in this reflection with our internal world, with the motivations behind our actions, and see how this conditions the course of our life. And so with the practice of mindfulness then, we have the possibility to actually see what's going on, see what's happening, uncover what are often unseen motivations, see what's going on in this process. And of course, some of the time we aren't gonna like what we see there, and sometimes greed, hatred, or delusion has the upper hand, and that's what's running the show. And often our motivations are mixed. They're not just pure or not just one way or the other. But at least with mindfulness, we can see what's going on. And it opens up this possibility that we're not just acting out habituated patterns. We can choose when to ask, act and when, what we want to follow in this realm. So I just want to stress once more, I said this already, but it's important to really under, realize and understand that the teachings on Kama do not point to anything that is fixed or predetermined, that everything is just the result of our past actions. It's an oversimplification that really leads to suffering and is not useful. And the workings of karma are very complex. And it said that only the Buddha can fully grasp them. I think it's one of the, what are called the imponderables And I think our head will explode into seven pieces if we think about it too much. So we have to be careful with that. We don't, over there in the corner. Oh no, the seven piece head. But, and there's a bunch of stuff that falls outside the workings of karma. (laughs) Maybe Jesse, I can feel it coming. (laughs) There are also a bunch of things that fall outside of the realm of Uh, karma, like illness, the effects of food and uh, nutrition and climate and weather and certain accidents, uh, a few other things. Karma is one thing that goes into the mix there. So it's not a mechanistic or closed system. And it's really important to remember that everything we do in an ongoing way in our life, in the present moment, affects the, impacts the whole system including whatever the fruits from past actions uh, that may be there. So it's very dynamic. And we can look at it again with my seed analogy. We can plant a seed, but then there's a lot of factors that come into play with what happens uh, in the sprouting and the growth of whatever plant might come from a seed. So not only the planting of it, but where it was planted, when it was planted, what those conditions were, the weather that was there, whether or not the plant was cared for, fertilized, watered, etc. There's all these things that will greatly impact that, that plant and its flowering. And so how we are in the present and how we choose to live in this moment really has a powerful influence on how this process unfolds, how karma unfolds. And goodness in the present tends to draw 
forth the power of past wholesome, skillful actions and bring that to fruition. So there's a very dynamic aspect to this. And so we can, in a sense, sort of clothe or wrap uh, unskillful actions in the past with goodness in the present moment. And this really does have a profound effect on things in terms of how the law of karma functions. I'll tell you a story, a famous story that probably a lot of you know. It's the story of uh, one of the Buddha's disciples uh, named Angulimala. And he was a bad dude at the time of the Buddha. His name, well, his name, his given name was Ahimsa, which means non-harming, harmless. But he fell um, prey to a jealous teacher, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, who, um, because he was, he was a very um, good and skillful being. And this jealous uh, teacher or being who had influence over him convinced him that in order to proceed in his unfolding of his, of his practice in life, he had to kill a thousand people. And he started doing this. And his anguli mala means a garland of fingers. He would cut a finger off and string them up and he wore them around his neck apparently. So he was not uh, really doing a good thing there. And it said that at one point the Buddha was walking through this area where Angulimala was living. And um, people said, no, don't go, don't go. He's going to chop you. And uh, the Buddha said, no, it'll be all right. So he goes and Angulimala, I think the Buddha was going to be his last victim. He was going to finish this task. And um, in the story, it said that the Buddha was walking mindfully along, and, but Angulimala couldn't catch him. And he said, stop, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. You need to stop. And um, it had a profound effect on his mind. <laughs> and uh, he became a disciple of the Buddhas, became a monk, and became fully enlightened fairly quickly, actually. And uh, it's said that whenever he went on alms round, people threw rotten food at him, and he, he suffered a lot of um, that kind of abuse in his lifetime. But he was, he was a very um, a soft-hearted, kind-hearted being after his mm, conversion, you could say. <laughs> and there was a time, there's a, um, there's a collection of chants that are done that are uh, blessing chants and protections. And the Metta Sutta is one of those. And there's a bunch of them, the Bojanga Parita. They're chanted a lot and they have very specific um, functions in terms of blessings and protection. So the Bojanga Sutta or Parita um, has to do with um, helping in times of illness or disease. And there's an Angulimala Parita. You wouldn't think there'd be a blessing chant based on uh, that has to do with this bad guy then at the time of the Buddha. But um, apparently Angulimala was walking through the village on alms round once and he heard a, a woman, a young woman who was having a difficult labor in, in childbirth. And he, it was touched him very, um, a lot. And he went to the Buddha and said, is there something that we can do? And the Buddha said, go back there and tell them that since you, that you have never intentionally harmed a living being. And Angulimala said, well, 
hey, I'm a serial killer. <laughs> this is not true. <laughs> I have harmed a lot of beings. <laughs> I can't do it. And the Buddha said, okay, go back and tell him that since you entered the, this life, this holy life, since that time, since you, since that lifetime, you have not harmed any living being intentionally. And Angulimala said, yes, I can say that. This is true. And so he went back and said, sister, since I have taken, since I've been born into the holy life, I have never intentionally harmed a living being. By the power of this truth, may you be eased in your uh, labor. And it worked. So now this is chanted uh, at those times. I'll end with a couple of quotations. Before I do, so this understanding of this teaching is really potentially very powerful for us. It really can transform the way we look at how we live in the world. It really can serve as a, as a science or, or as a recipe for happiness. This is a quotation from Sayadaw Upandita. He said, and I think this is from uh, In This Very Life, a book called In This Very Life. I think that's where I got this. He said, our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Kama is our only reliable possession in the world. Kama has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery, depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. And it also has long-term consequences. Seeing in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of Kama as our true, reliable property is called the light of the world, for by it we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of Kama is like a railroad junction where the train can choose its own direction. So the power of our mind and the power of intention and motivation in the mind and in the heart really is vast with far-reaching consequences in our lives and in the world. And we, we then can choose what kinds of seeds we want to plant through our actions. This simple uh, quotation from His Holiness to end the talk. Happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. So let's just say quiet now for a couple of moments and then I'll ring the bell.
Thank you for your kind attention this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.